When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're exploring the shocking history of Nazi death marches. During the death marches that happened towards the end of the war, tens of thousands of people died on the roadside from exhaustion, were shot for fame to keep up, or murdered in seemingly random massacres. All of this as the Nazis moved people from concentration camps before liberation by the Allies. In essence, the Nazis left a trail of blood across Europe. Now, the Wiener Holocaust Library in London is translating personal accounts from these marches, and they're exhibiting them to the public as part of their new Death Marches Evidence and Memory Exhibition. We have Professor Dan Stone and Dr. Christine Schmidt who are part of this exhibition and they take us through the key aspects and personal stories behind this important yet incredibly sobering history. Hi, Christine and Dan. Thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for having us. Not a problem at all. The team and I read about your astonishing new exhibition and the research into the first-hand stories from the Nazi death marches, and we had to get you on the podcast to tell us all about this important history. But perhaps we start there. Perhaps you can start by telling us what the Nazi death marches were and who was involved. Sure. This is a really important part of the history of the Holocaust and beyond in terms of the wider Nazi criminality. And it's one that's often overlooked in the histories of the period, which is why we wanted to address it in this exhibition. You often find references to death marches in survivor accounts, post-war accounts and post-war testimonies. But putting them all together and making sense of the death marches as a phenomenon is much harder. So, the basic story is that as the Red Army was advancing on the Third Reich, the inmates of the concentration camps were evacuated from those camps deeper into the interior of Germany. And the reason for that is usually assumed to be because Himmler, as head of the SS, gave an instruction that no concentration camp inmates should fall alive into the hands of the enemy. But beyond that... There were no real precise instructions. And so what ends up happening is that local camp commanders and their underlings 
are essentially responsible for taking the decisions about what to do with the concentration camp inmates. And so although from April to September 1944, there were evacuations of some of the camps further to the east in the Baltic states and Majdanek in eastern Poland, the main evacuations took place between January and April 1945. So as the Red Army was rapidly approaching the borders of Germany. At that point in January 1945, there were approximately 714,000 concentration camp inmates. That means camp inmates in the concentration camps run by the SS. It doesn't include other types of Nazi sites of incarceration, which also included tens of thousands more people. But those inmates in the camp system, those that were in the camps further to the east, Auschwitz, Grossrosen, Stutthof and others, were gradually evacuated as the Red Army approached. And the Nazis referred to these simply as evacuations. The term death marches comes from the inmates themselves because this is what they became. There were no precise instructions about what to do with the inmates. And it was very quickly apparent as they left the camps. Already, of course, most of these inmates were half starved. Most of them were in extremely poor physical condition. That from the moment they left the gates of the camp, they were being shot. So those who failed to keep up, those who tried to escape, were either left by the side of the road to die in the freezing winter of early 1945, or they were shot by the guards. And so by the time of the liberation of the camps and the end of the war in May 1945, about a third of those camp inmates had been killed. And it's really an extraordinary statistic because on the face of it, there was no reason to kill those people. And on the other hand, it doesn't appear to be an organised form of mass killing in the sense that it wasn't simply a continuation of the Holocaust. Not all of these camp inmates were Jews by any means, although Jews on them suffered, I think, disproportionately in the sense that where massacres took place along the routes, these were often targeted at Jews. But the overall effect was not simply to carry on the Holocaust, if you like. If the Nazis had wanted to kill all the camp inmates, they had the means to do so. So it's really a conundrum, in a sense, for historians to work out what was going on here. What was the point of this bizarre phenomenon? And it was bizarre because when you look at the routes taken by the camp inmates, they're extremely convoluted. They're very complicated. They retrace their steps. The Nazis change their minds. They reach a certain camp and then they decide it's full. They send them somewhere else or they're heading in one direction and then they decide, no, we'll go somewhere else. Depending on the military situation and the traffic on the roads and the chaos in Central Europe, at this point in time. So it's actually, there are lots of remarkable stories of individuals on these death marches, but trying to make sense of them as a phenomenon as such is really quite complicated. Yeah, it sounds it, but it almost epitomises the chaos at the end of the war, especially in terms of the command structures within the Third Reich. But you mentioned these personal stories, and I know you've got first-hand testimonies that you've rediscovered from the archives at the Wiener Holocaust Library. Could you describe some of these personal stories to us to give us a sense of this human impact? Sure. One of the things that we wanted to show with the exhibition is not only this complicated history that Dan just mentioned, but just sort of also how we came to know about them. And that is obviously through survivor testimonies. So we highlight stories from our own archive. So we include a really remarkable account by Gertrude Deak, who is later known as Trudy Levy, who's a, quite a well-known survivor and speaker in the UK. And she recounts the story where it's, you know, as she herself says, I should have been dead many times over. And she sort of escapes this march and relies on individual instances of kindness or of help. 
but it's quite a harrowing account. And we've featured that one. We've also featured the story of Eugene Black. He's sort of the face in many ways of the exhibition, in part because he eventually ended up on an evacuation towards Bergen-Belsen. And because the idea of, you know, what Bergen-Belsen became and the images of liberation of Bergen-Belsen with these atrocious images of bodies and destruction and death, I mean, that came to be because of these evacuations. Bergen-Belsen became this place where a lot of evacuations were sent by sheer virtue of where it was located and the way the front was moving. So, you know, you have this image of Belsen becoming this horrific place, but that the prehistory of that are in many ways the evacuation. So we include Eugene's story because of that and because he was one of the founding members of the Holocaust Survivors Friendship Association, which is based in Leeds and which is one of our partners on this project. So we wanted to make sure his story was featured in the exhibition. There's no shortage of cases. So in some of the work that I've been doing, I've used material, for example, from the interviews conducted by David Boda, who was a Latvian American psychologist who, after the war, was a real pioneer and returned to Europe with a primitive form of wire recorder and interviewed survivors in DP camps, mainly in France in 1946. And so he took some of the very first recorded interviews with Holocaust survivors. And what's fascinating about them is that, by contrast with those that we read today, of course, he didn't have a kind of Holocaust narrative or template in his head about what had happened. And so when the people he's interviewing try to explain things, you see in the transcript, he's responding saying, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Like, this is unbelievable kind of thing, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And so I've got one example to hand. Uh, he took an interview with a man called Ludwig Hamburger, who was deported from Katowice in Silesia, which was annexed and was part of the Third Reich during the war and was sent to Auschwitz with his parents, where he was separated from them. And then he was transferred to one of the subcamps of Auschwitz called Blechhammer, which was one of the largest of the Auschwitz subcamps, held about 4,000 men and boys. And then that camp, Blechhammer, was evacuated on the 21st of December 1944. And he recounts to Boda how they marched day and night. First of all, they marched towards Gleiwitz, which is today Gliwice in Silesia. And then they were held overnight one night in a barn. And Boda asked him for explanation about what had happened. And Hamburger says, it was terrible indeed. The SS men were around. They were strongly armed. They chased us inside. There was very little room so that one climbed on top of the other. When we came out in the morning, many comrades remained behind. Boda says, what does it mean, remained behind? Hamburger says, we ourselves have trampled them to death. Boda, yes, in the barn. Hamburger, with our own feet have we trampled our brothers to death. And the Death March accounts are full of these kinds of details, which seem extraordinary. And Boda's response to this in the transcript is, hmm. And you see, he's simply trying to process in his head what he's just been told. And Christine and I have read a lot of these sorts of accounts for this exhibition. But even so, when you hear each individual trying to explain what had happened to them, because they don't really have in their heads the big picture of this as a phenomenon that's going on across Europe. They're just trying to explain what happened to them individually. And it's very difficult for those taking interviews in the initial post-war period to really make sense of this. And it remains hard to make sense of it, because you, obviously the history of the Holocaust is a history of absurd and unnecessary suffering. But there's a certain sense when you read these accounts in the last few months of the war, when the end is in sight and the Nazis know they're going to lose the war and the survivors know that they're close to surviving, 
these accounts of this unnecessary suffering and the absurd nature of the killing that took place is very hard to make sense of. I don't think you can make sense of it, but it does serve an important purpose to paint that quite remarkable, unbelievable, awful history, imagery of the suffering that did take place. And in fact, within the collection, I know that there are some quite remarkable images of the death marches. Do we know who took these images? I assume it must have been an immensely brave act to covertly photograph Nazis marching what they assume to be prisoners, I guess, through the streets. We do have uh, some examples. There aren't that many to our knowledge. We feature some particular examples were taken by Maria Zeidenberger. She was taking them secretly. So you can see, like, when you look at the image, you can see the kind of window ledge. And she was sort of obviously taking the images from behind a window and trying not to be seen doing it. And she's taking these pictures of these long columns of individuals. We have other images where the inmates are still in uniform. And so one historian has called these mobile concentration camps. And so you see prisoner societies being maintained on these marches. And she's trying to capture that because it's so horrific. And she, her mother actually was giving potatoes and other food and assistance secretly to people on the march. And obviously this isn't necessarily the most common experience of people who survived the marches, but it did happen. So we have these images. So we kind of have organized the exhibition in some ways chronologically, but not totally. So we're thinking about how did people encounter the marches. And this was one way. And then as Dan was just talking about in terms of survivor testimony, very early survivor testimony being gathered in the camps, but also through the course of their rehabilitation, their physical rehabilitation. So if you're thinking about images of death marches, you see we have included images of survivors who were physically devastated by what they experienced. And that's not something that we can convey completely in description. But if you see the exhibition, some of the images that we've included there's an image of Solomon Silverstein who was shot in the head and he was left in the woods in a forest somewhere to die and he managed to survive. And of course, he's going through physical rehabilitation and apparently told some of the people who were caring for him after the war about his experiences. So we've sort of set the exhibition up in this way so that as information about the marches was unfolding or as people encountered them, for example, through these clandestine images, it sort of depicts this unfolding information and how information about marches came to be known. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Christine, you use this term physical devastation. And when I first read that in the article that was about your exhibition, it really struck me as the only way you could possibly describe what happened to these people. Because there's images there that show people when they were relatively healthy, in 1939 and then when the pictures are taken them again in 1945 you see just the impact that it's had on the human body people like sabina and fila zeps right we include images of them they were taken to a ghetto in poland or in occupied poland after it was invaded in 1939 and there's some images of them before they became completely devastated of course by that experience as well but then the images of them in rehabilitation after they were liberated. They had been on a death march to Valari, which is one of the more fully researched examples of a death march. The two sisters, one of them died the day after the photograph was taken. And it's a particularly difficult image to look at. And one of the decisions we made as curators for this exhibition was not to not show or to hide those images. And it's a particularly vexed question because people, of course, didn't consent to their photographs being taken. There are photographs of bodies in this exhibition, very difficult images to look at. But we think you can't really tell this history without depicting some of those images. And of course, we feel that we did it sensitively and ethically. We have to consider that our exhibition space at the library, and of course, it's also being shown in Huddersfield at the Holocaust Exhibition and Learning Center at the University of Huddersfield. Both of these spaces are used for other purposes. So at the library, our space is used as a reception area. So people are bringing in deliveries and may not necessarily be ready to encounter images of death. Of course, they know that they're coming to a building that says Wiener Holocaust Library. So they know that they're in some senses coming to a building that's going to have something to do with the topic. And it's not an uplifting topic. But we made sure that when we display the images in the exhibition, we put them in such a way so that they are visible within context. And they're not used to shock people. They're not used to elicit an emotional response without understanding what is happening. They're really shown to depict this physical devastation. This is the fact that people survived these marches is quite remarkable, really, considering everything that they've gone through. Well, you mentioned uplifting and you're right. There isn't very much that's uplifting about this topic or this period of history. But the element of liberation of the concentration camps is often seen as a benchmark moment in the history, the moment that that horrible suffering comes to an end. You see it often depicted in films as the gates swinging open as people are freed. But something niggles in my mind here that this isn't quite the swift process that we see 
in films. It's a long, protracted process. Could you tell us how liberation actually realistically plays out for people? Yes. I mean, I wrote about this in a book on the liberation of the camps that was published in 2015. And this is also something that we've tried to incorporate into the exhibition to some extent, because, of course, the liberation, and I think really we should use liberation in inverted commas, is the what appears to be the end point of the death marches. But the fact is, not all survivors of the Holocaust were liberated in camps. Many actually were freed without even realising that they'd been liberated, sometimes on death marches when the guards, hearing that they were close to the front line, would simply disappear, melt into the background and do a runner before they were captured by, they hoped, by the Americans rather than the Red Army, if they were lucky. And so they often tried to just disappear, and then the inmates would be sitting around confused as to what was happening to them. Nobody was telling them to go anywhere, but they would just be left. And there are often stories involving one or two brave souls who sort of wandered off to try and investigate what was going on, or they sat and waited for Allied soldiers to appear. There were also... We talk about death marches, but often these involved being transported by train. And there are some particularly gruesome examples of trains of inmates being sent off from Dachau, for example, and from Belsen. That in the case of the Dachau trains, where inmates were abandoned and were found to basically have died of starvation in the train when it was encountered by the American soldiers. Or in the case of Belsen, there were three trains that were sent out quite late in the day in April 1945, one of which was liberated by Red Army soldiers, one by the Americans, and one which basically just sat in the middle of nowhere until the inmates themselves, again, worked out what was happening to them and essentially liberated themselves. So there are cases when soldiers arrived at the gates of camps in the way that we see from film. So if you read the descriptions of the British arriving at Belsen or the Americans arriving at Dachau, there are scenes, and survivors describe this, how they ran to the soldiers and cried and wept on their uniforms and so on. But when you read those accounts, you always have to remember the fact that only those who were physically able to do so responded in that way. That at the same time, as some of the inmates ran to greet their liberators, there were also in the case of Belson, tens of thousands there who, even if they understood what was happening, which many didn't, they simply didn't have the ability to pick themselves up and go and meet the soldiers. And there were very many who didn't know what was happening, couldn't understand what was happening, and if they did, didn't care because they were too ill and beyond the point of caring. So actually liberation means many different things for different survivors, some of whom survived for days or weeks after liberation, but who were too physically destroyed already to be rehabilitated. And so there were people liberated in camps. There were people also liberated by the side of the road, people who appeared out of hiding across Europe in all sorts of very different circumstances, depending on which part of Europe they were in, which allied soldiers they encountered, what the response of the locals was to survivors and so on. It's a very wide range of responses. And then how were these survivors rehabilitated and reintegrated into society? I think the crucial distinction here really is between Western and Eastern Europeans. So the Western European survivors in Belsen, in Dachau, in Buchenwald, were able to return home quite quickly. 
So often the French, the Belgians, the Dutch, the Germans, to some extent, sent transport for them to return home. Not always. So if you think of Primo Levi's story in The Truce that recounts his long and tortuous journey home, it took him nine months to return from Auschwitz to Turin in an extraordinary journey across all parts of Europe. But it was possible on the whole for the Western Europeans to go home, even if they met a frosty reception and people didn't really necessarily want to hear about their experiences, particularly in the Netherlands, where they'd also just been through the hunger winter and the response to Holocaust, the small number of Holocaust survivors was, yes, well, we suffered too. And that kind of shut them up. But for the Eastern European Holocaust survivors, particularly for the Jews, they couldn't go back anywhere. Their whole communities had been destroyed. And when they did go back, they were subjected to pogroms like in Kielce in 1946, or they encountered locals who'd stolen their apartments and were rather surprised to see them turning up again. So there are many stories of Jewish survivors going home to look for surviving loved ones and then leaving again quite quickly. And so these people form the bulk of the Jewish displaced persons in the DP camps, ironically, in Germany and some in Austria and a small number in Italy, which lasted for a number of years after the war, whilst these people were waiting to be resettled. But in the immediate aftermath of liberation, the Red Army in Auschwitz and the Americans in Flossenburg and Dachau and Mauthausen and Buchenwald and the British, most famously in Belsen, set up medical facilities at extremely short notice to care for people. And there have been criticisms about incorrect feeding regimes and so on. But nevertheless, I think particularly what the British army did in Belsen was really extraordinary. I mean, it became the largest hospital that has ever been created in Europe. And this is thrown into stark relief by COVID, because when you look at the Nightingale hospitals that were created last year at short notice, everyone was agog at the fact that, oh, we've produced these hospitals with 2,000 beds in a fortnight. And yet the British created a hospital for 50,000 people at the end of the war with limited resources in the middle of a war zone, forcing local doctors and nurses and others to be involved. It's really an incredible achievement. So despite the large numbers of people who died, I think something like 13,000 who survived at liberation, but who then subsequently died because they were too ill to survive. Nevertheless, the hospital that was established and the care that was given was, I think, an extraordinary thing. I think that is extraordinary. It's remarkable. And certainly not an aspect of the history that I've heard much about in the past either. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and telling us about this important history. Perhaps you can just tell us a little bit more about where people can learn more about this. Sure. We've just opened the exhibition two weeks ago in London at the Wiener Holocaust Library, which is, of course, where I work. And we are opening the exhibition. So our partnership is opening the exhibition next week at the University of Huddersfield at the Holocaust Survivors Friendship Association's Holocaust Exhibition and Learning Center, which is located on the University of Huddersfield's campus. And of course, we have a web resource as well. So on the Wiener Library's website, you can find information about um, the exhibition. If you can't visit either exhibition in person, we do have a gallery walkthrough film and we also have a series of panel discussions coming up soon. And there's also a catalog as well. So that can be purchased from our website as well. And we have these panel discussions coming up, which are all virtual. So everybody who can make those can take part in some aspects of the exhibition. So lots of opportunities to learn from the exhibition and to engage with the content, even if you can't physically be there. But we do hope you can now that we are open and galleries are open too. 
Yes, support your libraries and museums where you can as we all try to return back to some semblance of normality. Dan and Christine, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.